Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with HowStuffWorks and love all things tech. And Tech Stuff listener Ivan had asked me in the last episode to do a show about space planes. As it turns out, there was a bit more to talk about to fill up just a single episode. So here is the part two to this. Uh, In that last episode, I covered what a space plane is in general and gave a history of some of the important developments in aviation that led to the deployment of the space shuttle, which was the first practical implementation of space plane technology. Uh, There were space planes before the space shuttle, to be clear, but all of those were meant as test vehicles, experimental prototype vehicles that were meant to expand our understanding of engineering and strategies in order to create a working space plane that would have applications beyond just research and development in aviation, as in uh, deploying satellites, for example, or taking crew to and from outer space. And so now we're going to pick up in the early 1980s after the space shuttle program had uh, launched and talk about some of the other space planes that have either been developed or proposed. And there's going to be a lot of jumping around in time on this because, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, the way space exploration and space programs have evolved over time is messy. It's not a simple in, you know, in year X, it started. And then that went on for 10 years. And then this other project started. You have a lot of overlapping timelines. And so sometimes that means that if you were to just look at launches, like when a test vehicle launched for the first time, it would look like a more linear approach. But in fact, a lot of these things were in development at around the same time. So with that said, in 1982, the then Soviet Union began test flights of a new space plane design, an unmanned space plane called the BOR-4, the B-O-R-4. That B-O-R stands for something in Russian that is so complicated, I'm not going to try and say it because I will dislocate my jaw. I am that bad at all languages including English. Anyway, this was the culmination of nearly a decade of work when the Soviet space program really began serious research and development on space plane design in the 1970s. The ultimate goal was to create a space plane called the Spiral 5050. And that was a project that actually dated back even further in the Soviet space program. It first got started in the 1960s. Now, these two concepts are closely tied together uh, the Bohr 4 and the Spiral 5050. So let's start with Spiral 5050 because that's what would ultimately uh, give way to the Bohr 4. And while the Spiral 5050 was a concept, the Bohr 4 was actually constructed. So the Spiral 5050 concept was incredibly ambitious. The goal was to create an aircraft that could take off like a conventional jet. So in other words, it would launch from a horizontal position off some sort of takeoff surface, like uh, a runway. Then it would travel up into air and continue to ascend until it reached outer space. Not just above the Karman line at 100 kilometers, that's the dividing line between the Earth's atmosphere and what we consider to be space, but even beyond that, all the way out into orbit. 
This vehicle was intended to bring supplies and crew to and from space stations orbiting Earth. And then it would return to Earth at the end of its mission and land again like a conventional aircraft. And as you can imagine, this would mean creating a truly innovative system because the stuff that lets you fly around in Earth's atmosphere doesn't work so great in outer space. The concept included a pair of expendable rocket stages, which would be necessary to push the vehicle out into space beyond the atmosphere. But within the atmosphere, there would be an air-breathing hypersonic booster that would provide the propulsion to get the aircraft to those very high altitudes before having to depend upon other uh, rocket engines. This is a good moment to talk about why you would want or need an air-breathing rocket in the first place. Because... We have a long history of using rockets that have oxidizers attached to them. Why would you go with a different design? Well, first of all, let's talk about oxidizers in the first place. For combustion to happen, you have to have three things. These are the, the three things that make up the triangle for fire. You have to have heat, you have to have fuel, something to burn, and you have to have an oxidizer. Not surprisingly, due to the names, oxygen is an oxidizer, a very common one here on Earth. Stuff can burn on Earth because we have oxygen that facilitates that process. But in space, there's a distinct shortage of oxygen. So without an oxidizer, flames would die out and combustion would stop. It's the same thing as if you were to light a candle and then cover that candle with a clear glass bowl. You would see that the candle's flame would start to flicker, as it was using up all the oxygen, and then it would ultimately sputter out. The same thing would happen with rocket engines, unless we carried an oxidizer in addition to the fuel we plan on burning. But we also know that getting into space requires a very careful management of weight versus thrust. You want to minimize the weight as much as you can to make efficient use of fuel. The heavier the weight of the payload, whatever it is you're sending out into space, the more fuel you're going to need and the more oxidizer you're going to need in order to generate the thrust necessary to put that mass into orbit. And it turns out that the oxidizer component in rocket engines weighs a lot. This is easily shown through an example. So we're going to look at the space shuttle to explain what we're talking about here. If you have an empty space shuttle, it's the spacecraft, it doesn't have any payload in it. It would weigh in at 165,000 pounds or about 75,000 kilograms. The two solid fuel booster rockets that would be on either side of the space shuttle when it was on the launch pad would each weigh 185,000 pounds or 84,000 kilograms. The giant external fuel tank, if it were completely empty of fuel, just the fuel tank by itself, that's the part that's in the center between those two big booster rockets, that weighed 78,100 pounds, or about 35,000 kilograms. So collectively, all of those components, empty space shuttle, empty fuel tank, two solid fuel rocket boosters, weighed 613,000 pounds. That's 278,000 kilograms. That's without fuel and without oxidizer. The oxidizer, which for the space shuttle was 143,000, thousand gallons or 541,000 liters of liquid oxygen weighed in at a staggering 1.359 million pounds or 616,000 kilograms. So in other words, 
the oxidizer weighed more than twice as much as the space shuttle, the rocket boosters, and the external tank combined. So the most, most of your weight is coming not from the materials, but from the fuel and the oxidizer. That makes up the vast majority of the weight that you're trying to send up there. A hypersonic air-breathing rocket would use the oxygen in the atmosphere as the oxidizer, which means, again, it would only work as long as there were enough oxygen in the environment to feed the rocket. However, it would remove the necessity to carry so much fuel and oxidizer on board, drastically reducing the weight and, by extension, the cost of the launch vehicle. Because if you don't have to put in as much fuel and oxidizer, you don't have to spend as much money per launch. So it was a way of making the flight more efficient, uh, less costly, less difficult, less challenging in the long run. If you're talking about just figuring out how much thrust you need to, uh, to propel that much weight into, the, into space. An air-breathing rocket, also known as a rocket-based combined cycle engine, works on a principle not that different from a conventional jet engine, which means now I get to talk about how jet engines work. This is how I sneak 80 different tech topics into a single episode. Ain't I a stinker? Okay, so a jet engine is a type of gas turbine engine. Gas turbine engines have a rotating component called the turbine which you should be familiar with. This is the same sort of component used in various power facilities, like a steam turbine or a wind turbine. And like those turbines, the gas turbine engine turbines are spun by a fluid, right? For steam turbines, you have steam passing through this, this uh, fan blade turbine system, which causes the rotation. But in this case, the fluid is pressurized gas that's created by burning fuel which then causes air to expand rapidly and then forcing that expanding air through the turbine. The turbines will spin at incredible speeds, which generates a lot of heat in the process. That actually is a limiting factor. You cannot have a regular jet engine operate beyond a certain point before you get into a dangerous situation because it's generating so much heat that components will either start to melt or they'll start to break down just from the incredible stress, the mechanical stress that it's under. Now, there are three main parts of your conventional jet engine. You have a compressor, which, as the name suggests, compresses air to increase the pressure. This usually comes in the form of sort of this uh, this bladed design. and uh, it is typically powered by the spinning of the turbine itself. There's a chamber called the combustion area, which, as the name would suggest, is where fuel gets added to the incoming compressed air and then is burned, it's ignited, which causes that compressed air to expand and become a high-velocity gas. And then you have the turbine, which extracts that energy coming out of that gas, allowing the gas to flow through the turbine, spinning it, and uh, that's where you generate your, your energy or you generate your power, I should say. Jet engine turbines use that energy to help drive the compressor and intake fans. And in a jet engine, the hot air from the combustion area will combine with cold air that actually flows around the core of the engine. So you have an engine design where air can flow around the core as well as going into the core. The air that goes into the core is the air that gets compressed and then uh, is uh, 
in that combustion chamber. The air going around it stays at a lower temperature. The two will combine at the nozzle and escape through the back of the engine. Now, as we know, every action has an equal but opposite reaction. So that gas shooting out of the back of the engine creates a forward thrust on that engine, pushes the engine in the opposite direction. The amazing amount of velocity means that it's enough to push an entire massive vehicle, like a jet plane, through the air. An air-breathing rocket engine would work very much in the same way as your standard jet engine, but would need some simplification in order to avoid overheating. Simplification is being kind. I'm, I'm talking about removing some parts. So scramjets, aka supersonic combustion ramjets, draw in air through an inlet, essentially an, a specially designed opening, rather than using an intake fan. And they don't need a rotating compressor to compress the air because the speed at which these jets are traveling is so great that the air gets compressed just by coming in through the inlet. And so you have this incoming air that's being compressed as it comes into this ramjet engine. And then fuel will get added to the combustion area. And this supersonic airflow and fuel mixture gets ignited. That fuel tends to be stuff like liquid hydrogen, for example. And the reduction of moving parts would allow this engine to operate at much higher speeds than conventional jet engines, which again would encounter those structural Uh, problems if they were to go way too fast. So theoretically, a scramjet, you would be able to hit like speeds of like Mach 15. Uh, I think the fastest, as I recall, I don't have it in my notes, but somewhere in the Mach 9.6 or 9.7 range, that's the fastest we've ever seen one go. But in theory, they could go much faster. Because of the nature of these engines, they require a vehicle to already be going pretty fast before they kick in. So you would need to combine those air-breathing rockets with some other method for the initial takeoff. They would not be sufficient to drive a vehicle so that it could take off from a horizontal surface. So you might need an expendable rocket, for example, like the kind that was proposed for the Spiral 5050. I'll talk more about the spiral in a moment, and I'll explain what happened to that project. But first, before I do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, back to the Spiral 5050. The project struggled throughout its relatively short life due to lack of funding. But elements of the project would continue even after the full Spiral 5050 got the axe, which it officially did sometime around 1975, although it had been canceled once before in 1969. One of those projects was the MiG-105, also known as the Experimental Passenger Orbital Aircraft. This MiG-105 was a jet that was designed to be a space plane. It never actually traveled all the way up into space. It was built, and it was flown several times, but never all the way up to an altitude that would uh, qualify as space. It did have in its design a pilot capsule that was completely insulated from the rest of the aircraft, and it was fully ejectable. So that was in order to to keep the pilot safe. the, The fear was that without this capsule and without that capability, if something were to happen when the vehicle was traveling at fantastic speeds, the pilot's the pilot wouldn't have any options. The pilot would be a goner. The MiG-105 could take off from a runway, or it could be dropped from a Tupolev 295 bomber 
The project was initially canceled on June 30, 1969, but the Soviets reinitiated the program in 1974 when they heard about the U.S. space shuttle program. The MiG-105 was actually built and flew on eight test flights, at least eight anyway, from 1976 to 1978, but again, it never made it all the way up into space. The tests were to make certain the design principles were sound, but the project was ended in 1978 after the pilot of the eighth test flight was forced to make a pretty hard landing. And ultimately, the Soviet Union decided that the cost of that program didn't make much sense and they wanted to divert the funds to other projects. The BOR series, B-O-R, was another part of the design of this space plane, and it started off as part of the Spiral 5050 project. These were subscale test vehicles for this proposed spiral. So BOR-1 was a much smaller model. BOR-2, BOR-3, they grew in size. BOR-4, the one that typically we, we say qualifies as a space plane, was one half the scale of the proposed Spiral 5050, but it was also an unmanned vehicle, and it was primarily meant to test the design, the physical design of the spiral, making sure that the the calculations they had made for lift and gliding and maneuverability would all make sense. And once Spiral 5050 got the axe, Bohr 4 was able to continue, but had kind of transitioned from being a test vehicle for the spiral to being a test vehicle to try different heat shield materials that would be used for a different Soviet project that I'll talk about in just a second. Uh, So in a way, you could think of the Bohr 4 as being similar to a previous uh, uh, project over in the United States, one called Asset, which I talked about in the last episode. That was intended to test out heat shield materials for the dinosaur experimental vehicle which ended up getting the axe in the U.S. The Soviet Union built at least a few Bohr 4 vehicles. And as far as we know, there were at least four test flights that took place between 1982 and 1984. And the Bohr 4 was sent up to space on a launch vehicle. They used different launch vehicles for each of the tests. And then essentially, it was allowed to drop back to Earth. And it would parachute down to land in the ocean and the Soviet Navy would recover the vehicles. Uh, a reason why I use a lot of supposedly's and as far as we knows, it's because the Soviet Union was notoriously secretive. They they did not want the rest of the world to necessarily know what they were and were not capable of doing. So a lot of this information is stuff that came to light after the Soviet Union collapsed, but there's still tons of stuff we just don't know all the answers to. Anyway, while the Bohr 4 was originally part of Spiral, the lessons learned from that project would instead inform the design of a different Soviet space plane called the Buran. Uh, it was also the uh, catalyst for a design of a U.S. space plane, the Bohr 4, that is, but more on that in a bit. So Buran is a Russian word for blizzard or snowstorm, and one that I am sure I am mispronouncing, so my apologies. The Buran was essentially the Soviet Union's version of the space shuttle. It was originally intended to keep the Soviet Union in a competitive place with regard to the United States and space exploration and space exploitation, to be frank. Ironically, the cost of the program would actually help contribute to the collapse of the Soviet Union itself. So while it was meant to make sure the Soviet Union remained in a strong position worldwide, 
you could argue that it was one of the many factors that would uh, lead to the Soviet Union dissolving. In the 1970s, while the United States was developing the space shuttle program, the Soviet Union began to look into creating a similar program to maintain tactical parity with the U.S. There was a legitimate fear among Soviet leadership that the space shuttle was going to be put to military use, which would put the Soviets at a disadvantage. And the engineers in the Soviet space program studied the designs for the space shuttle program, and they sort of began to pick and choose which components of the space shuttle they thought were good in relation to the Soviet space program and which ones they should reject. So, for example, the Soviets had not developed a, an enormous solid rocket booster that the space shuttle would be using. In fact, the space shuttle used two of them for liftoff. So the Buran uh, space program would instead rely on liquid propellant boosters, not solid rocket fuel boosters. A Buran orbiter was launched on November 15th, 1988. This was actually several years behind schedule as the program was plagued with lots of problems. Technological issues, funding problems, a lot of management spats, a lot of Soviet politicians further up the chain who were arguing with one another as the years went by. This orbiter that launched had no crew aboard it. It was a completely autonomous flight. It flew to space. It returned, it used automated systems, and actually landed under automatic control, making it the first space plane to go into space and return and land automatically. It was a successful test of this technology, but the cost of the program was incredible, and the Soviet Union was crumbling. So after the collapse of the Soviet regime, the program languished. Uh, as far as I can tell, it was never officially canceled, largely because, frankly, the government had bigger things to worry about having this this massive transition. But uh, because there were no funds, the program essentially ceased to be without an official cancellation. Uh, the orbiter was stored in a hangar, but that hangar would later collapse during a snowstorm, and that would cause damage to the spacecraft inside. Meanwhile, as Buran was preparing to make history in its launch, there were engineers in the United Kingdom who were working on a different concept. This was a horizontal takeoff and landing vehicle called the HOTOL, H-O-T-O-L, horizontal or takeoff landing. The rocket engine proposed for this vehicle was a special one called the Rolls-Royce RB545 Air-Liquid-Hydrogen-Liquid-Oxygen Rocket Engine. Yep, a Rolls-Royce engine. Falls into the category of a single stage to orbit or SSO concept. So you would have this one, instead of a multi-stage rocket, you have this single stage method of getting this vehicle up into space. The concept placed the engine at the rear end of the vehicle. So think of like a, a kind of a space shuttle looking design and then blunt the, the back end and, you know, you chop the tail end of it off and you place an engine right there on the very back. And then it, the wings had to go in the back too because that's where the engine was. And numerous calculations showed that they were going to have to make a lot of different adjustments because the way they had laid out the vehicle meant that its center of gravity was not where it needed to be in order for it to maintain efficient flight. So they had to keep making tweaks, which led to compromises when it came to the payload that the vehicle would be able to carry. And eventually that reached a point where it was clear that the concessions they were having to make would make this aircraft unfeasible for practical use. 
because you wouldn't be able to carry enough stuff in it to make it worth the expense of launching it. So the project was ultimately defunded. But a company called Reaction Engines Limited resurrected that design to become the foundation for a new project called Skylon. Skylon is still in development, and assuming it ever becomes a, a reality, it will rely upon an air-breathing rocket propulsion system called SABER, which stands for Synergetic Air-Breathing Rocket Engine. So we'll have to wait and see if that ever becomes a reality. Uh, there are people really working on it. The question is, will there ever be a working aircraft before uh, something else happens, like a project gets runs out of funding? In 2004, a company co-founded by Paul Allen, who was one of the co-founders of a little company called Microsoft back in the 1970s, debuted an experimental rocket-powered vehicle called Spaceship One. Spaceship One is designed to launch from a larger aircraft. So you can think of it as a, a giant plane that has uh, like two fuselages, one on either side of an extreme uh, plane design, and the center is a, uh, a connector where it can carry a payload underneath it. They call it like a parasite system, kind of like a lamprey on a shark, I guess. And uh, although that's a, not a parasite, it's a symbiotic. Anyway, doesn't matter. So the Spaceship One would be carried by this larger vehicle, which would then uh, take it to a proper altitude. And then the Spaceship One would detach and engage its engines to continue its trip. The Spaceship One would become the first private manned spacecraft to actually fly into space back in 2004. They won an X Prize for it. This was a testbed vehicle in many ways. It was not capable of orbital flight. Typically, the way a flight would work, I kind of mentioned this a second ago, but you have the carrier aircraft, which was called the White Knight, that would climb to an altitude of about 9 miles or 14 kilometers or so. White Knight would then release Spaceship One, which would drop into a glide. It would reach a safe distance from the carrier aircraft, which wouldn't take long at all, and then ignite its rocket engine. And when the rocket would fire, the spacecraft would adjust its attitude to a climbing uh, angle, and it would start climbing higher in altitude. The engines would only fire for a relatively short time, the rest of the flight upward would be unpowered and driven by momentum. But if you had a long enough rocket burn, you could propel the craft beyond the Karman line, which is at 62 miles or 100 kilometers, and then the spacecraft would change its wing configuration in order to create more drag. So it would have a system where its wings would move in such a way to, uh, to do arrow braking by creating drag. It would slow As it would slow down, it would then uh, start to lose altitude and re-enter the atmosphere, and it would begin the descent and deceleration process back to Earth. And I hear that the landing would be more than a little bit bumpy, but it was serviceable for an experimental aircraft. That design would lead to the Spaceship 2. That one was built by the Spaceship Company. That company grew out of the one that made Spaceship 1, as well as a partnership with another company, Virgin Group. These days, Virgin Galactic owns the spaceship company. So this is where we get Virgin Galactic and that proposal for a space tourism type of private spacecraft. The Spaceship 2 design is in many ways similar to Spaceship 1. It is carried by a larger aircraft, this time the White Knight 2. It's meant to be a passenger aircraft, so you could actually have space tourism. 
Passengers wouldn't go into orbit. Like the Spaceship One, this aircraft would cross the Karman line. Passengers would experience free fall conditions, so weightlessness essentially. They would be able to experience that for a short while before the aircraft re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and would return home. It would be able to hold up to six passengers and two pilots. Uh, in October 2014, the test vehicle, Spaceship Two VSS Enterprise, had a tragic accident. Uh, it crashed after the aircraft had suffered some damage during its flight. One of the co-pilots died in this crash. The other one was injured. An investigation after the fact found that there were numerous problems that could have contributed to this disaster, uh, ranging from safeguard designs to perhaps an underprepared and anxious co-pilot. Uh, so it, there wasn't one issue necessarily that was at fault, but there was a, a combination of problems that may have contributed to this. The program, however, has continued. There is now the VSS Unity space plane, which has conducted several test flights since 2016. There's no word on when commercial flights will begin, but Virgin Galactic has taken bookings for them. Each flight will last about two and a half hours and will include some weightlessness on that flight. And a ticket on one of these early Virgin Galactic flights will set you back the princely sum of $250,000. Yes, a quarter of a million bucks for a two and a half hour space flight or space plane flight. I mean, out of that two and a half hours, you're only going to be spending a few minutes in the weightlessness environment. So uh, still, you know, could be a once in a lifetime opportunity if you got the cash. Really starts to divide the uh, haves and have nots in a totally new way, doesn't it? Like, those who have been to space and those who haven't, I'm going to be in that second category at that price range. Anyway, in order for me to make enough money to finally get to space, I'm going to take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Between the unveiling of Spaceship One and the first test flight of Spaceship Two, there were a couple of other notable space plane developments. As I said, we have to jump around chronology quite a bit. One of those developments was the famously secret X-37B, aka the Orbital Test Vehicle, or OTV. Uh, X-37 actually covers a range of different orbital test vehicles. The X-37B is the one we're particularly interested in because it's in use right now as I record this podcast. So Boeing manufactured the X-37B. The project began at NASA. It changed hands to the Department of Defense in the early 2000s, and the Air Force oversees it. It's an unmanned spacecraft, so there's no pilot, there's no crew. It's launched as a payload on a rocket launch vehicle, like SpaceX's Falcon 9, for example. And then it goes into orbit, and it will orbit the Earth for some given amount of time, dependent upon the mission. And it can return to Earth and land as a space plane on a landing strip. And it has done this uh, four times already, with the fifth mission still in, uh, in service as of the recording of this podcast. So officially, the purpose of the X-37B is to perform as, quote, an experimental test program to demonstrate technologies for a reliable, reusable, unmanned space test platform for the U.S. Air Force, end quote. It's supposed to test various systems and designs for a sustainable approach to space operations. So in other words, again, more R&D so that you can build those capabilities into future practical vehicles. However, 
there are a lot of people who have theories about other purposes the X-37B could fulfill, practical applications it may already be doing in addition to being a testing ground, such as acting as a surveillance tool, like a spy satellite, or even as a weapons platform. In April 2018, the Orbital Test Vehicle 5 mission hit a landmark when it was announced the unmanned vehicle had spent 200 days in orbit. Uh, That isn't a landmark in the sense of breaking any records. The previous orbital test vehicles had all done that as well. The purpose of the mission, at least the stated purpose of the mission, is to test experimental systems and how they hold up to the rigors of space travel over time, including stuff like radiation exposure. As of August 2018, the orbiter was still circling the Earth. A satellite tracker in the Netherlands captured images of it. Uh, But we don't know how long this mission will last. The Air Force is notoriously quiet about the X-37B, giving only the bare minimum of information about it. However, the past OTV missions have shown that they tend to go up there for a very long time. Each OTV mission would last longer than the one before it. So if we go by that, the OTV-5 mission isn't even out of the first half of its journey. The OTV-4, the one before this one, spent a total of 718 days in orbit from May 2015 to May 2017. So if we're just over 200, we're coming up on one year for OTV-5, we got a ways to go if, in fact, it continues the trend of staying up there longer than its predecessor. In the United States, the move to create a space force suggests that projects like the X-37B will be leveraged to test out systems with direct military applications beyond a research platform for future designs. I am not necessarily in favor of that, but it appears to be a reality. Remember earlier when I was talking about how the Bohr 4, that unmanned Soviet test vehicle, inspired some U.S. engineers? Well, it's time for us to go back to that story. So, again, back in the 1980s, after the first test flight of the Bohr 4, there was an Australian surveillance aircraft that caught images of the Bohr 4 when the Soviets were retrieving it from the ocean. American engineers would pore over those images to figure out what the Soviets were up to. And work began on designing their own model of the Bohr 4. They used those images to build a reconstruction of it. The American engineers discovered that the Bohr 4 shape was particularly good for stable flight and would allow for extreme maneuverability in glide mode. Well, in the wake of the Challenger accident in the mid-80s, NASA began to look into other potential solutions that might be used to transport astronauts safely back to Earth if they were on, say, a space station. It would be an emergency return vehicle, essentially, something that could hold up to 10 passengers at a time, possibly. Now, this was when the United States was also considering the construction of a new space station that would have been called Space Station Freedom. The vehicle's designation for this escape vehicle was HL-20. Engineers would build a full-scale mock-up of the HL-20, but by the time that happened... Things had already changed politically. The United States was now partnered with Russia on a new project, the International Space Station. And part of that design included relying upon a Russian Soyuz capsule, which would use the ballistics method of re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere in order to land back on Earth. And that would become the lifeboat for this International Space Station. It seemed to negate the need for the HL-20. 
Flash forward several years, and a company called Space Dev announced that it was going to use the HL-20 design as a starting point for a new reusable spacecraft that could be operated as a means of taking crew to and from the space station. The announcement came in 2010, right around the same time that NASA was explaining that the space shuttle program was wrapping up. This new spacecraft was called the Dream Chaser. SpaceDev was one of the companies that bid for money from NASA in order to continue developing its space plane design because uh, NASA was in need of some sort of spacecraft that could be sent up to the International Space Station since the space shuttle program was ending. But in 2015, NASA decided to focus on SpaceX and Boeing for that. And both of those companies were designing capsules that resemble sort of the Apollo spacecraft in general design. So again, they would use sort of the ballistic reentry method rather than a space plane guided landing method. In 2016, SpaceDev's parent company, Sierra Nevada Corporation, would secure a contract with NASA to perform six delivery missions for that space agency, with a contract term going from late 2019 up to 2024. The Dream Chaser design had to be changed significantly for this agreement. So they stripped out a lot of the crew uh, capacity, so I think six crew seats were taken out. And that whole section was converted so it could hold pressurized or unpressurized cargo. The company still plans to pursue the uh, the crew version of the Dream Chaser in the future. They're hoping that they can revisit that in 2020. So they haven't abandoned that idea entirely. But in the meantime, they're also working on this other version of their vehicle, uh, which has practical application. Boeing, meanwhile, is working on another space plane design that has the DARPA designation of XS-1, uh, XS standing for Experimental Space Plane. Boeing calls this aircraft the Phantom Express. This autonomous space plane is a vertical takeoff, horizontal landing spacecraft. Uh, so the, the engine on this is designed to take off vertically like it was a space shuttle, except it's all part of the same vehicle. It's not on a booster rocket. The goal for the spacecraft is ambitious. It is to be able to launch into space, deliver small satellites to orbit, and return in the same day, and then get refurbished and turned around in order to be usable within 24 hours, with a goal of doing this for 10 days in a row. Such a plane would significantly bring down the costs of launching smaller satellites. It would reduce the need to have those smaller satellites piggyback on top of larger payloads. Typically, if you have a small satellite and you want to launch it into orbit, you have to wait. You have to wait until there's a payload that still has some room for your small satellite because the cost would be prohibitive to just send your satellite up. This would bring those costs way down. The Phantom Express would include a space plane that would also act like the booster rocket. It would send the craft into space, but there would be on top, on the back of this space plane, what would essentially look like a secondary rocket. The payload would actually be attached to this secondary rocket. And once it reached a certain altitude, it would launch this secondary rocket off the back of the space plane, and the secondary rocket would push the payload into the proper orbit. Meanwhile, the space plane would decelerate, re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, and come back and land under its own power. So it would be ready to use right away. Uh, I don't know about the secondary rocket. I honestly don't know if that's designed to be recoverable or not. I would think it would be, but perhaps not. It may be 
that that's just a, a one-use-only component. There are several other space planes that are in various stages of development. China, their space program has several promising designs. Uh, there's another design called Black Ice for a private space plane. This is a concept from Strato Launch Systems, which was also founded by Paul Allen of Microsoft fame. The Black Ice concept would launch from the largest airplane ever built, the Strato Launch. I'll have to do a full episode on Strato Launch at some point. The Strato Launch has a wingspan of 385 feet, which is 117 meters. And it has six Boeing 747 engines that it uses to generate lift for flight. Uh, the Strato Launch, or really to propel itself so that it creates enough lift for flight, I should say. I was oversimplifying. But the Strato Launch hasn't flown yet as of the recording of this podcast. It has conducted some tests on the ground, including a recent taxi test where it traveled at 80 miles per hour down a runway. It would need to travel at least 140 miles per hour in order for it to take off. But these are early tests to make sure that the design of the aircraft is sufficient so it will hold together. <laughs> you know, it'll, it'll actually be stable. More tests will follow, but the company does hope to reach the point where the aircraft will fly and carry payloads by 2020. And there are lots of stories of failed projects. There's, for example, the X-Core Lynx, which was supposed to go for a test flight back in 2016. The company behind it, however, went bankrupt and all of its assets were sold off. But perhaps I'll go into more detail in those projects in a future episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this pair of episodes about space planes and our return to space. It's not exactly the same thing as a full week and a half of space-related topics like the last time, but I thought it was pretty interesting. And obviously, creating a reusable uh, vehicle that can return under its own power and be turned back around to fly again in a short uh, time frame would really transform the way we access and utilize space. Possibly for good, possibly for ill, but it would definitely bring that price down. And maybe eventually it would bring the price down enough so that a regular schmo such as myself might be able to afford a ticket and, and get up there and experience what space is like for even a short amount of time. Um, I, I would even take a parabolic flight where it's just uh, simulating microgravity. I would do that if I could. Hit me up, guys. Anyway, if you would like to contact me and let me know about a topic you would like me to cover in a future episode of Tech Stuff, we got a few ways you can do that. One is brand new. We have a dedicated website for Tech Stuff. You can find it at the URL techstuffpodcast.com. It should be live by the time you hear this. And you're going to find all sorts of nifty stuff there, including links to ways to contact the show and links to the merchandise store. Uh, you're going to see a beautiful picture of me because Tari made me send one to her. And so I'm sorry, but it's there. And you will find all the other methods of contact, like uh, the web, the, the email address, which is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, and the Facebook and Twitter links, which is techstuffhsw. And again, check out that store. See if there's something you would like, because every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And uh, oh yeah, don't forget to follow us on Instagram, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>